Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to Valerie Young, who is an expert on imposter syndrome. So if you have ever had that feeling that you are going to be found out as a fraud, then this is the episode for you. Valerie shares um, some of the insights from her research and also talks particularly about why imposter syndrome may be experienced by PhD students. She also tells a really funny story about Smurfs. Um, So I do hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi Valerie. Hi Emma. Um, this is super exciting for me. I have to say I totally recommend to anybody doing a podcast because you get to speak to all these people whose work you really admire <laughs> and you get to ask them lots of questions. Um, and your book really, Valerie, it, it was just really changed things for me. Um, and I don't say that lightly. Of course, imposter syndrome comes up a lot for PhD students. And so that's why I started looking for researching material. Um, And I saw this book. Okay, okay. I thought I'll look through it. Um, I've got it with me right now. It it is full of post-it notes, highlighted to the max. Um, And, you know, I've done a lot of work on myself, but still I found that having been through your book, I knew myself better. I, I got to know myself better through it. And what I think is so striking about it, I've recommended it to so many people, especially PhD students, because it's so carefully researched, but it's the practical exercises, I think, are are so brilliant um, and really take you through a process. So thank you so much for the book um, and thank you for coming here to, to talk about it all. Oh, thank you, Emma. Thank thank you for your kind words about my book. I really appreciate that. Oh no, well, it's all true. Um, and so we're going to get in. We're going to get into um, imposter syndrome a bit in a minute. But I always ask people, um, first of all, about their own experience of graduate study and how you got into the work that you do now. So, can you tell us a little bit about about that and your own educational journey? Absolutely. You know, I really kind of stumbled into a, a doctoral program. I, I knew nothing about graduate school. No one in my family went to graduate school. My dad had two years of college, but that was pretty much it. Um, and I, as an undergraduate student, I took a course on on um, on racism and got fascinated by it and, and really wanted to learn more about the woman who was teaching it. Her name was Judith Katz, and she was a, PA, uh, a doctoral student in the School of Education at the University of Amherst, where I ended up going to school. And I just wanted to understand, like, how are you doing this? And what are you doing? (laughs) And tell me everything. And I just wanted to be Judy. So I, you know, she took me down. I kind of, you know, filled out the application and and applied and got in. And and honestly, I just, I really just stumbled into it. Uh, And that was the track I was on initially, was looking at um, leading groups for white people to understand individual, cultural, and institutional racism. 
midway through, though, I, I learned about the imposter phenomenon as it is more accurately known in the world of psychologists, uh, psychology. Uh, two psychologists, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, coined the term in an article in 1978 called mm. The Imposter Phenomenon Amongst High Achieving Women. Somebody brought the paper into a class, started you know, reading about these people who feel like they're going to be found out. And they're not really as you know, intelligent, capable, competent as people think they are. And I instantly identified, uh, in, as did all the other graduate students, by the way. Right. <laughs> so I changed my whole focus of, of my research. And I decided I didn't so much study imposter syndrome. I studied... Um, I looked at women's self-limiting attitudes and behaviors. Like what are the things that might lead us to this place of feeling mm. like imposters? And I'm kind of glad I went at it from that perspective. I can't say it was this, you know, brilliant conscious decision on my part. I was just, it was, I wanted to understand um, because it's really helped inform my thinking on, on the sources of imposter syndrome and the solutions. Uh, and even though my my research was with a, was actually with a very highly racially diverse group of of um, fifteen professional women, there was eight women of color and seven white women. Um, that um, you know the things that I learned. Yes, there's ways that it it's more uh, common and problematic for women imposter feelings. But so much of what I learned, really, even early on, Emma, is it, just so applicable to me, to men um, as well. So. You know, like most graduate students, I, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> Just kind of bumbling around trying to figure it out like like the rest of them. That is all that's why I always ask this question at the beginning, because I think it's so important to to know that because I I think it speaks right to what we're going to talk about in a minute. But seeing people there, you know, you you're very, very successful in your field. Um, to know that you came from a place um, where you didn't really know where you were going and you and you found your way through. And if that's what it feels like to people, that they're just kind of finding their way through, then they're probably doing absolutely the right thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, join the club. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I also love that it was an it was an inspirational person that kind of that led you in. Um and that I think is truly gorgeous in terms of saying, I want to be, I want to be you. <laughs> And and then and then finding out what that means for yourself. Gorgeous. Thank you for that. So you did come into this work. Um, and so I'm I'm going to there's so much that I could ask you around. Um, but I suppose just generally, could you talk a little bit about the, the scope of your of your work? Um in terms of imposter syndrome, imposter phenomenon, um, and yeah, perhaps, yeah, perhaps particularly the crusher lie—that—that that for me was a really important concept. Sure, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I really have not been doing academic research since I was in, in graduate school. I did not pursue a career um, in academia. I mean, instead, I took the findings from my dissertation, and I turned it into uh, interactive educational uh, workshops and experiences for adults, uh, which I think was um, turned out to be very useful because 
you know, in psychology, usually, you know, it's a one-on-one, you're going to therapy. <laughs> and, mm. and this was more about, you know, understanding yourself. That was a piece of it, uh, but also being given kind of information and insight and tools to uh, be able to kind of talk yourself down off that imposter syndrome ledge uh, a little bit faster. And, and what you're referring to in terms of the crusher, I wish I could take credit for it, but it came from uh, Gerald Weinstein, who was at, at the university in, this, in the Department of Education when I was there. He was a faculty member, and he had a wonderful um, a whole curriculum uh, called Education of the Self, uh, with a very powerful kind of pedagogy behind it around you know adult learning and self-awareness. And, and part of his model with, with his permission, and I emphasize that because there's so much plagiarism going on out there in the world mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, with his permission, I, I modified it a bit and, and put it in my book. And I've been using it in my workshops for many years. But it's basically, it's a, it's a um, see, I would say process, but process. So you'll see I'm bilingual. It's, it's a process. <laughs> <love> <laughs> Well, I'm from Essex, so I speak a whole different language. So, <laughs> well, Canada, Canada too, Canada too. So I'm very used to uh, project process when I go to Canada. Um, so, but he has this whole uh, process for looking at and kind of untangling and becoming consciously aware of what is largely an unconscious mm. pattern. So it begins with looking at what are the situations that cause prompt these feelings, right? It's not when you're walking the dog or doing the dishes. Uh, It's, you know, it might be in a meeting, a faculty advisor meeting, right? Or when you're in class and you're called on, or you're asked to get up and make a presentation, or somebody is challenging you on your your work, um, you know, applying for a job and so on and so forth. Those are the kind of moments where you feel like an imposter. So you think about, feel in the sentence, whenever I'm in a situation where uh, I usually experience feelings of, it's probably not joy and exhilaration, it's probably mm-hmm. anxiety, stress, self-consciousness, self-doubt, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and the negative voices in my head start saying, and what I typically do is what? And, and and what we do, and then I kind of took that part, which is look at the behaviors, and I melded it with work um, that Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes did, looking at people's um, um, coping and protecting mechanisms. They, they came up with a number of them. I've added some of my own over the years. But basically, these behaviors we have used um, unconsciously to both manage the anxiety of waiting to be found out and to actually avoid being found out. So anything from uh, kind of flying under the radar, right? Not speaking up in class, not going for more challenging opportunities or assignments, um, you know, not, uh, but basically kind of kind of keeping that kind of low profile and hope nobody notices you so you won't be discovered. Mm-hmm. Procrastination is another big one. Uh, I, I often tell people when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation, I had the cleanest house in Northampton, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> never been as clean since. You know, never starting or finishing is another coping mechanism, which sadly, way too many PhD students drop out and don't finish. Uh, overworking, overpreparing, that's another one. So in other words, the, these unconscious behaviors are we're trying to take care of ourselves. So in that regard, you know, Jerry would say we need to appreciate our pattern. Because these patterns are designed to help protect us from something, help us avoid something, or help us get something. 
And one of the things that they help us avoid that you're, you're alluding to is what Jerry would call um, kind of coming face to face with, with what he would call our crusher. Mm. And our crusher is that lie. We might, might not even be completely consciously aware of it. This lie we tell ourselves about ourselves. Like I'm real, I'm not as intelligent as other people around me. Uh, a friend of mine, hers was, I'm not an original thinker. Because she had this notion in her mind that if you're going to be a graduate student, you have to come up with some you know novel, new, original thing that no one on the planet has ever thought of um, before, you know. Or I'm really you know an incompetent fraud, or whatever that whatever the little voice is for you. Right. Uh, and the thing about crushers is they're always lies. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They, they they feel like the truth, but they're always lies. Um, and so once you kind of can identify your, your crusher and, and you know, what kind of what you're getting out of your panic, so it's helping you avoid, maybe it's helping you avoid failure or humiliation or disappointment or criticism. Uh, or maybe if you procrastinate, guess what? You get time to do things you'd rather be doing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, again, it helps us get something, uh, protect us from something or avoid something, um, but, but always at a cost. I love that appreciate your pattern because I think that is that brings in all of that sense of self-compassion that you're doing it for a reason it's not just coming from nowhere it's it's coming for a reason um and that it is a pattern that is something that that has been building up and happens um and as you say that you're also getting something out of it that actually that there is there is a benefit to it in some way even though it's not necessarily what you think it is um, so, yeah, well, and that's pretty- why you want to understand it, because once I understand the pattern and I understand my behavior, what I'm getting out of it and the cost, then I can make an informed decision because now I'm consciously aware of it. Yeah. I can say, well, you know, maybe I'm going to keep my lousy pattern because overworking, overpreparing is the, what's what made me successful. Nice. Or you decide the price is too high because I'm, you know, burning out, you know, physically, I can't keep up th- this pace. Yeah, yeah. And but at least now you, you can make it's it's a conscious decision. And let me just add one more really quick thing. I love that you said self-compassion because it was a study out of I want to say um I know it was out of Austria. I want I don't want to name the institution because I might get it wrong, but it was a study out of Austria that found that people who had high self-compassion in terms of how they spoke to themselves had less uh, imposter feelings. People who had low self-compassion, who were like always kind of beating themselves up. Oh, you're so stupid, Valerie. Like, why did you say that? That was such a dumb thing. You know, mm. <laughs> that they, they, they're more likely to have more imposter feelings. So mm. it really does matter the words that we use to, to talk to ourselves. Mm. And the thing is, it's like, it's, it's that quote, isn't it? You're the most important person you'll talk to all day. And you talk to yourself all day. <laughs> so, and we never talk to other people the way we talk to ourselves. It's, it's yeah it's shocking and I I think when you when you say to somebody wow would you say that to someone else and they're like of course I wouldn't it's like well why why do that to yourself why say that to yourself mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um so we've got this sense of imposter syndrome the sense of waiting to be found out the, the sense of doing all the things to try and stop being found out um and the anxiety around that um and what we what we're particularly going to talk about then here is this sense of how it's particularly significant for a PhD, 
um, because it comes up so often in my discussions with PhD students. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Valerie? Well, I speak to a lot of PhD students. I've spoken in the US, Canada, Japan, Europe, uh, and, the, and the UK. And I always tell my PhD students that they are my favorite audience for two reasons. Number one, they're in such pain. Mm-hmm. And number two, they get my joke. So it's like a perfect combination. <laughs> <laughs> Almost by definition, PhD students feel like imposters. You know, the, the, the number that's always thrown around the percentage is up to 70%. You know, people have had imposter feelings at one time or another. Yeah. Uh, a study out of the UK found uh, CEOs, 80% of CEOs and 82% of managing directors said they sometimes feel out of their depth and that they're struggling in their role. If I was going to, you know, kind of guesstimate, I would say PhD students, it's probably like not at least 90%. Right, yes. Um, it's yes. like by design, you know, you're thrown into this situation where you, you, you somehow think you should have come out of the womb knowing how to write a dissertation, you know, or how to do research. And, and, and how on earth would you ever know that? But we think that we should. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, it's, it's a stressful situation. You're in a highly competitive environment. You're in a highly educated environment where, uh, you know, there's that kind of culture of comparison. And then you layer on to it academic culture. Yes. And by the way, uh, professors feel like imposters as well. The only study I'm aware of were a higher percentage of men than women. And by the way, there's a lot of men who feel like imposters, but it's rare to see a study where it finds more men feel like imposters. Well, this one study was conducted with college professors uh, uh, and more men and women felt it. And I think that really goes to some elements of, of academic culture that fuel self-doubt, not just in students, but also in faculty. So there's lots of, you know, anxiety. It's like you're kind of self-employed in a way, you know, and you've got to kind of figure it out. And yes, there's your advisor, but you know, that he or she, it can feel intimidating. A lot of anxiety around kind of looking stupid, feeling stupid, not being as smart as people around you, thinking, you know, being afraid, you know, because you don't know what you're doing, which, which of course you don't know what you're doing. Why would you know? Why on earth would you know what you're doing? <laughs> no one, we don't learn how to do this. We're all kind of thrown into the big PhD pool and said, okay, figure it out, sink or swim. Yes, yes. And and as you say, there is a there's a cult, an unhelpful culture. Um, I was talking to someone about it today in terms of there are those people who will ask you the questions just to make themselves look better and therefore to put you on in an uncomfortable position that does happen in academic culture so actually the anxiety does come from somewhere it doesn't come from nowhere um so that sense of being being pressed being um yeah put on the spot um and I, I i would love you to to tell the story that's in the in the book the martha beck story Oh, yeah, that's funny. Because that's a, it's just such a brilliant. I haven't told that story for a while, and I I did a webinar for graduate students at Northeastern University yesterday, so I did I did share it with them. Um, Martha Beck was a PhD student at Harvard University. Uh, she and her husband were getting their PhD there in psychology, and um, it's in a book called Expecting Adam, and it's named that because while she was at the university, unexpectedly uh, she became pregnant. Her son, Adam, had Down syndrome, and that's kind of what the book is about. But in the book, she 
talked about having this, you know, severe bout of, of imposter syndrome until one day something happened that changed everything. So she's get, heading off to class and she decides to make a stop at a friend um, in a laboratory who was conducting some experiments with rats who were swimming in a little plastic children's pool, little kiddie pool that had these blue Smurf cartoon characters on it. And that the rats had electrodes, you know, connected to them and swimming around in some experiment. And all of a sudden she realized she's late. She runs off to class and the professor says, oh, Martha, I didn't think you were coming. And, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but she essentially said, oh, I'm so sorry, professor. Uh, I got hung up in this psych lab watching the rats swim in the Smurf pool. To which the professor replies, uh, yes, I believe I've read about that. How is Smurf's work going anyway? <laughs> and then it, another graduate student says, yes, I believe I've read Smurf's latest paper. You know, and she, she said it went on that way for a few minutes and it was suddenly dawning on her. She said, you know, she had gone to many a cocktail party and pretended to know the latest theory or theorist of the day. You know, she said, I always wondered how I had managed to survive among the staggeringly intelligent people lurking around me. Now I was beginning to understand, right? So that the whole scenario ends with the professor saying solemnly, he's a good man, Smurf is. So that became her mantra, you know, when she was having an imposter moment, <laughs> just say, he's a good man, Smurfin, just, just to remind her that, you know, like they're all faking it on one level or another, um, but I'm not. You're, you're just fooling more people on a higher level is kind of what you feel like when you're, when you're in graduate school, but just, just don't assume that everybody else knows what they're talking about. And I also think in academia, and this is true, it's in law, you know, medicine. I mean, you know, medicine's a little different, obviously, but but there's so many, the language can be so kind of dense and, and convoluted and un, unnecessarily so, you know, it's just an inside language that it's easy if you don't know the lingo to, you know, to feel like you're not as intelligent, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many other graduate students would be talking through their dissertation. And I would sit there and I have no idea what they were talking about. And as I look back, I wish I'd say, could you say that in plain English? Yeah. 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 Um, and they might be challenged to do that because they're writing in a convoluted way because they're, they're trying to cover up. They're not quite sure of where they're going. <laughs> right. And to make it all sound more important. And, you know, it's just, it, again, it's the language. It's, it's like law, you know, the legal documents are so difficult to read unnecessarily. So. But again, I think it's that thing, isn't it, of compassion, that everyone's just trying to make their way through and that it it's, it is okay. Everybody is just doing their best, I guess. Um, and yeah, I do, I do just love that Smurf story and that sense of it's okay. We're all making it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the reality is it's okay to be winging it now and then, you know, we we're so hard on ourselves. People who feel like imposters have set this internal bar unsustainably, um, high, you know, and, and we can kind of hit it sometimes. You know, we have these moments of brilliance uh, and then we have moments where, you know, you just can't put together a whole sentence. Um, but we think we should be on the brilliant end of things 24-7, you know, and and, and I, I don't think I said this in my book, but when I was in graduate school, I was procrastinating terribly on my dissertation. So I went to somebody who was, she was a writing therapist, which was very helpful because she helped me understand, you know, some of my writing blocks and things that were going on there. 
but also would take a look at, you know, my, my outline, my proposal, you know, give me feedback, which was very, very helpful as well. So I went in, you know, week after week for several weeks and of telling her how incompetent I was and I wasn't as intelligent as the other students and I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't belong here. And then I decided, you know, I should tell her the other side. So I did point out after a few weeks that I was incredibly intelligent, highly articulate and, you know, incredibly whatever. And she looked at me and devastated me, Emma, in only that way your therapist can. And she said, no, you're not. <laughs> I was like, well, she ought to know, right? She's my therapist. She said, you're not incredibly, extraordinarily, exceptionally. She said, you are going to, you know, achieve the majority of goals you set for yourself in life, as is, you know, most people who apply themselves. Wow. And that was, and I said, you know, like, all right, I'll take that, you know, because I was setting myself up. Because again, we all have moments where, where yeah, everything's kind of clicking in you. You're like, wow, that was pretty good. You know, I was kind of a hot dog. And then we all have moments where it just all falls apart. <laughs> and, and most of us spend most of the time in the middle. Yeah. And, and that's think, okay. And I think that that is really key for, for PhD students because these are people who will have most usually flown through under, undergraduate education probably a master's too and really have had no kind of challenge to that to the to the power of their intellect and then to get to a PhD and and be concerned that can they can they really cut it um and and that can be really tough um mm. so uh, yes I, I love I love that I mean I, I feel like that was quite harsh <laughs> Actually, no, she didn't say it in a mean way. You know, she, <laughs> she, she kind of was laughing. You know, she didn't. I, 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 I misspoke. She didn't say it in a mean way. Right. But she was really giving me an important kind of lesson and help, pointing out to me how I was really, you know, setting myself up. You know, it just occurred to me when you were talking. I don't know why, but I was speaking in Canada. I think it was the University of BC. I don't remember. But but I remember the student came up to me at the end, graduate student, PhD student, and he said. Um, he whispers to me, I only believed half of what you said. And I said, okay, I'll bite. <laughs> I knew he wanted to tell me something. And he said he he failed his oral exams at Oxford. And I said, well, that stinks, right? That sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, sorry about that. Like, what did you do about it? All right, so like, you know, it, it's already happened. So, yes. you know, none of us can you know, we're all going to have setbacks and failures and difficulties and, and challenges. It's what you do with them that matters. I'm guessing he had probably very often you have, you know, six months, let's say, I know at MIT, you have six months to go back and, you know, try again. You have one more shot. Mm. Mm. But I, I don't get the impression he did that. And he just kind of you know, went off to Canada and decided to get a different degree or something. Oh, blimey. So that was it for him. That was the end of the story. I failed my thing. That was it. Yeah. Wowza. Wow. Well, because he was offering it as like proof. So like, like okay. see, I only believe half of it because I, I can prove I'm an imposter because I failed my orals. Well, you know, half of all doctors graduate in the bottom half of their class. Right. Right. And I guess that is the thing is that you, you, you will be able to find evidence that you, that you um, are not worthy if you look hard enough um, because you know, that you, you can, you, we're all, probably our own harshest critics um i i love the way that you frame things in terms of looking for the resourcefulness that you have that that's fundamentally what's needed that um you talk about that sense of um being able to uh 
just not be so worried that you don't know everything because you're going to be able to work through it and find information and kind of know, rely on yourself to be able to find solutions and find a way through. Yeah. And, you know, going back to that young man, you know, you could be crushingly disappointed as he was. Yeah. You could be crushingly disappointed if you fail, but not ashamed. Hmm. I mean, the only time you should feel shame is if you didn't really try or if you procrastinated so long that it showed up in the results. Hmm. You know, your listeners might want to Google Princeton professor failure CV. Right. Uh, he's a tenured Princeton professor, uh, and he posted not only his, you know, very prestigious, uh, um, impressive success C- CV, but he also posted his failure CV of all the publications that were rejected, the, the jobs he was turned down for, the conferences that didn't know, accept his, his proposal, uh, the grants he didn't get. Uh, and it kind of rocked the academic world because we think success is this kind of straight shot up. And in reality, it's this, you know, peaks and valleys. And that's, you know, that's real life. And that's kind of ripping the mask off this facade of, of you know, just one big success story, which it's it's not. I that is, I'm going to Google it. <laughs> that is brilliance. Brilliance. Um, there, there's so much more that um, I, I want to talk to you about, Valerie, and um, I might have to ask you back another time because I'm aware of time. Um, and I also, I'm going, what will be in the show notes is the, the, um, the uh, details of your book. And I really would recommend it. Um, there's so much more in there it goes into so much more detail and gives you as I say exercises that you can work through to find out the different types of imposter syndrome that was the, another thing um in terms of that uh there are comp what you talk about con- competence types that you have an idea of p- different people have ideas of what competence looks like and therefore what they what in their mind they need to achieve um so yes go look go look up that book um but before we finish, I always ask a very kind of unfair question, I guess, in terms of um, a top tip for people to take away with them. Um, so is there is there one thing that you would uh, leave us with? Can I leave you with two? Go on. Okay. You, it's because it's you and I love your book. <laughs> so one of them is... Um, that, you know, what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter, but that's not how it works. Feelings are the last to change. That the only way to stop feeling like an imposter is to stop thinking like an imposter. And, um, you know, people who don't feel like imposters, and I don't mean arrogant people who, you know, have irrational self-confidence syndrome, uh, but, but people who are humble, but they have just genuinely never had these feelings. They're no more intelligent, capable, competent, talented, qualified than the rest of us. It's just that in the exact same situation where we feel like an imposter, they're thinking different thoughts. And much of that thinking is thinking differently about competence, uh, thinking and responding differently to failure and setbacks and thinking differently uh, about fear and, and what all that means. So that's you know a lot of what, what's in my book. The, the last thing I'd like to leave people with is that this is not all about you that everybody loses when when bright people play small, hold back, you know, drop out, don't finish. 
burnout. Um, and I figured this out when I was in graduate school. I was procrastinating terribly on writing my dissertation. I'd, I'd had all my data. I had you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of data. And like now I had to like figure out what it all means. And my friend Rita, pre-email, wrote me a letter and said, Valerie, you have to finish because you're learning things that can help a lot of people. And when I got that letter, it just reframed it. And I thought, oh, my God, like, how selfish am I? <laughs> People nice. are waiting for me. I have to hurry. And it was very motivating for me to think about this, not in terms of myself, but whatever small contribution I might be able to add to this much larger conversation going on out there. I, you know, it would be selfish to not do that. I love that. And indeed, you are. This this book is so helpful. Has been I I know from personal experience and from the people I've recommended the book and then fed back to me how useful this work is. But yeah, to remember that for all for all of us, we go into this work, into research work to to share some more information, to shine a light um, on areas that that we feel passionate about. Thank you so much, Valerie, for your time, for your wisdom, for getting your work published. <laughs> um, Hardest thing I ever did writing that book, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, it it is truly brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. And I'll speak to you next time. Bye.